Welcome to another podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. On both my blog and podcast, I always try to cover the latest trends that are going on in the field of technical communication and and related fields. Uh, Today, this is a recording of a presentation that I gave about blogging, podcasting, and screencasting uh, that I gave to the Transalpine Conference in Vienna in June of 2009. And in this podcast, I'm really trying to focus on what characteristics blogs, podcasts, screencasts need to have in order to capture the long-lasting attention of your followers, to, to convert them to devoted followers rather than just casual readers who may or may not check your blog once every month or two, if they can remember the title. Uh, it's somewhat long, so I've broken it into two parts. This first part is about 45 minutes. If you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. You can send me an email. Just go to my site, idratherbewriting.com, and click the contact button, and or you can leave a comment. Um, there's also lots of other podcasts that are available on the site. If you just click the podcast button on idratherbewriting.com, you can browse an archive of about 100 different podcasts. All right, enjoy the presentation. When I was gathering some, some preliminary information about what kind of... Um, Actually, this was for the blogging workshop on WordPress. Uh, somebody had a question about purpose. You know, how does this fit into technical communication? I'm talking, about, I'm talking about blogging, podcasting, screencasting. These aren't really things that you typically do during your day, right? You usually write, you interview subject matter experts and publish and so forth. So the purpose really of, of these Web 2.0 Web 2.0 formats and mediums and activities helps you brand yourself as an expert. So in my little guy here that I drew, uh, at the bottom of the ladder, when you have about 100 posts, you kind of, by posts I mean on your blog or something like that, you're kind of invisible still, nobody really knows you, you're still considered somewhat of a novice and unknown. As you start writing more and more and publishing more and more, uh, you get more influence, more recognition, more visibility. And by the time you climb up there to 1,000, 10,000 posts, uh, which could take a long time, right, depending upon the content you're writing, uh, you get a lot more recognition. People see you, and you have more of, of, uh, more of an influence. Vicki? How did you come up with 10,000? <laughs> oh, it's just, uh, no, there's no magic number. I, I mean, it, okay. it doesn't. I, and that's a lot of posts, actually. I mean, I only have 750 on my site, but I imagine by the time you get up to 10,000, you really have your name out there. The reason I got <coughs> that is because there's a relatively new book in the United States called Outliers. Oh, yeah. Written by... Uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And he, uh, <coughs> he talks about one of the success, what makes you successful. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know I had just read that book and maybe maybe I was maybe putting it in there. Maybe in there, and so he talks about how ten thousand hours really does make you an expert. He uses, I mean, more than an expert, it makes you really a, a unique star. And he refers to the hills. Mm-hmm. Um, he even talked about Mozart in that book. You know, since we're in Vienna, he said that. Yeah, okay. He tries to debunk the idea that genius is is naturally uh, given to you at birth. And he says even Mozart, even though he's playing these concerts at age six, didn't really get into creating his own compositions until he was like 21, 22. 
So he had from very early childhood until 22 to practice and to work on it. And he had mentors and opportunities. And by the time he hit 21, uh, he had at least 10,000 hours of practice. And that enabled him to really, um, really do a lot of uh, cool things, obviously. <laughs> so, so uh, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I, I wanted to work that book in because I really like that book. And Gladwell talks about timing and how, for example, Bill Gates, uh, we, we often think of Bill Gates or William Joy, I believe, the Unix guy, as these just brilliant programmers that were just born uh, with this programming ability. But really, they happened to come, come about at the right time. They were at the right place where they had access to a computer. And he, Bill Gates would actually sneak out in the middle of the night to go, go program. And, um, but the timing factor was critical. He, he kind of got his rise right as the computer was coming out. And he got a jump start above other people. And I think that the timing right now is perfect for writers because blogging, it's been around for the last five years at least, right? It's become popular. <clears throat> it's probably been around for 15, but it's become popular in the last five years. You all are writers. You have a writing talent and an ability that you've been honing and practicing for the last 20 years, more, 40 years, whatever. Uh, and now if you combine the two and apply your writing in this format that is flourishing, the time is right for you to achieve a lot of visibility and to basically uh, just exploit this medium for your own benefit. So it's really the right time to be a writer. You, whereas think about maybe several hundred years ago, to publish something was not easy, right? You, you, it, it was a, lab, a tedious process. Not everybody was published. And even 20 years ago, it was a similar story. So this is kind of the purpose. <clears throat> now, Tom, yes? Think, who was the author's name? <clears throat> Malcolm Gladwell. Outliers. Blink, The Tipping Point. He's one of my favorite guys. So when I was at the uh, STC Summit a, a month ago, uh, somebody came up to me <clears throat> from Australia with her Brisbane accent, I guess, if they have their own accents. But she came up to me, and she brought a bag of stuff. She said, Tom, you know, I'm glad to meet you. I brought this for Jane and, and, and your kids. You have, she had a bag of books, a book for each of the different kids, a book for my wife, and some other stuff. <clears throat> she said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of your wife's blog. And, and I knew she was. She said, I'm a follower of your wife's blog, and I really, you know, just wanted to give her some, some of these things. And it made me think a lot during the conference. I was thinking, you know, there, there are at least two kinds of readers out there. There are readers who, who just kind of visit your blog every once in a while because they're, they want to keep updated, but they're not really loyal followers. They just kind of want to, they want to keep in the loop every now and then. And there's another camp of people who become more than followers. They become devoted disciples of your blog. They become people who uh, really follow you in a, in a very loyal way. She was one of those people with my wife's blog rather than my own, even though she says she, she follows mine as well. She's probably just being nice. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I realize you could, that, that line, and she was, 
she was she was saying she didn't want to feel stalkerish, but she really liked her posts and read read a lot of. So in my two scenarios here, the first scenario I consider to be somewhat failure, where your readers are not really paying attention. They don't really care, but they'll check your, your material out every now and then. The other scenario, people are behind you and they really love uh, reading, listening, watching, whatever you do. Why is it? What is it that compels people to become devoted followers? Uh, what are the qualities of these, of these things? Because we know that there are millions of blogs. Uh, there's lots of podcasts. There's lots of screencasts. What is it? that makes them so engaging that your audience becomes devoted followers? That's a question I wanna, wanna try to answer. Dan, did you? I'm gonna give you an answer. Okay, no, well, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Why don't you inject as we go along? Okay, so I have a clip from Kirsty. that's, uh, and we have some speakers here, courtesy of Mikhail. Hopefully they'll be able to project all the way. This is where I asked her, I, I brought my little recorder at the summit and I said, Kirsty, well, what is it that makes people devoted followers of blogs? And here's her response. Um, well, I guess for me, well, Tom, you actually introduced me to your wife's blog because it was your description in your About You on your blog when you talked about your cool blogger wife and provided a link to her blog. That, that's how I found out about her blog. I, I stumbled upon it that way. And I guess I really enjoy uh, Jane's blog because her writing style, um, although we're, we're very different women, we're both mothers, but I work full time, my husband works full time, so my daughter's in childcare, we're in a different scenario. Jane is a full time caregiver to your children and, and so she has a whole world of experiences that while I can relate to some of them from the time I spent at home with my daughter, you know, I, I can't relate to all of them, you know, what it's like being at home with a two-year-old and a four-year-old or, or whatever, um, but it's still fun to hear about it and to know how an, an intellectual, interesting, witty woman is dealing with her life and so committed and focused to her children, and, and she just shares that in her blog, and I, I guess it, it just really speaks to my heart, even though... Uh, and I read it because it's not about my same exact scenario and situation and I see the points of commonality to my life and the mm. points of difference and go, oh, well, that's how, you know, maybe I'd be a bit like that, maybe I'd be a bit different. And, and it really, I guess, Jane's blog makes me reflect on my life, choices I make, sometimes, you know, whether they should be the right choices, you know, maybe they're the right choices for me, they're not the right choices for other people. And I think it's just... Uh, a lot of it is probably just really speaking to my heart and, and following a blog like Jane's is um, so much more about, I guess, my life, whereas following your blog is much more about my profession, which is definitely a part of my life. But bringing in, uh, in Jane's blog, yeah, it, I, I, it really comes down to how it speaks to my heart. Okay, so she's kind of wandering around there a little bit, searching for the answer, but she kept saying that it, it's, it speaks to her heart. And I was trying to unpack that and figure out what it is that you know really makes things speak to your heart. And I come up with uh, about eight main reasons that I, I think we can explore. Uh, relevance, it's gotta be uh, something that's relevant to you. There's the voice, there's interaction, there's readability, there's story, this revealing appropriately, which could be termed transparency, but transparency sounds kind of cliche. Uh, regularity of content, visibility. All these things play into 
this equa this formula to make a blog that speaks to your heart. Vicky. I have a, a bachelor's in English and a creative writing degree uh, in nonfiction. So. From Columbia University, yeah. which is a very top school. Very top school. Um, and I was just looking at that with your background, thinking, how is that? This might not be an appropriate question for now, but maybe for the break. How is blogging similar to writing? How, how is, yeah, how is blogging similar to nonfiction? Wait, if you were to There's, critique? They're very similar. I really like personal essays as well. I mean, there's full-length nonfiction books like Malcolm Gladwell's, obviously, the Outliers book. But uh, a lot of his stuff is, is uh, published as essays that are individual essays. And I think a good personal essay uh, could pass as a, a, a blog, and, and that's really what it's about. Blogs are somewhat shorter in format, but yeah, the same characteristics are there. And that's part of the appeal for blogging for me. I mean, this is why studied and so obviously it kind of fits in with what I what I like to do as well but that's a good point and a good connection so this first one this first point relevance this this is key even though she didn't well she did mention that uh, it, it's about a woman dealing with her life so it's relevant to to her because she's a woman she has kids and she's trying to to navigate all these life turbulences and whatever kind of things come her way but um this is the key, this is like the starting point for blogs. You have to have a focus. You have to have some kind of focus for it to be relevant to your readers. If one day you write about politics and the next day about finances and then about marketing and then you write about the weather and then you write about your trip somewhere and then you write about uh, your, your job and then you write about your kids and then you write about politics again, you have no focus. Now, you can be really specific and say, I'm just gonna write about um, weather patterns in the mountains of Vienna or something. And, and you may find a lot of, of, of people who are interested in that. But in this little drawing here, you notice that there are some paths that kind of veer off, off the main trail. And this is how I like to, to see things. Uh, when you are writing about a topic, you're free to go off on little side paths every now and then. But you need to have a main trail that you're following. So if you're writing about, say, WordPress or something, and you're giving tips, you can veer off into paths of blogging, of podcasting, of uh, Web 2.0, social media. But by and large, your main focus would be WordPress uh, or whatever you have. You're really limited to writing about what you know anyway, and that knowledge is usually not infinite. So you tend to focus back on, on a similar topic. You did that a few weeks ago. <clears throat> I did. I, I kind of went through a crisis of focus on my blog. I thought, man, I, I feel trapped. I've been writing about techcom too long, and I want to write about some cool stuff. I want to write about what I want to write about, even though I didn't know that, what it was. So I wrote this long thing about pessimism and optimism and, and the wind and things. And then I realized that to write well about something, you have to have knowledge about that topic. And to have knowledge about it, you either have to read a lot about it, or it has to be part of what you're currently just engaged in, whether your profession, what you do normally. So uh, whatever it is, you have, to, you have to have some knowledge about it. And that's usually um, something that you're doing every day. But you know, when you did it, the one I'm referring to as a yeah. 
of that week that had to do with your with a relationship with your family. Okay. And thinking about this side path, my experience was okay, this is unexpected. <laughs> but I trust you because I've been following your blog and I understand the podcast and I know that you talk about blogging and on the interviews. So I trust I trusted you enough to allow you hmm. to do that, to participate in your journey. But I definitely was expecting you to get back to that. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's a good point. So you can make allowances for people to to go off on side paths as long as you just trust that they're gonna come back. Right. So there's a couple because I thought, oh, is this gonna turn into a personal <laughs> Yeah. It, there's there, a danger there. <laughs> I think about that. There, there is. And, and when people are usually first starting out blogging, they don't really know what topic they want to focus on. They're not really sure, right? And my advice is to just take the first couple months and write about whatever you want. You'll naturally focus in on something. It will, it will, you'll naturally find a, a way. There was a guy I knew named Clyde Parson who... He wasn't sure what he wanted to write about. He started writing about music and he had one on techcom. So he had two blogs and he found that he didn't really want to write about techcom. But then his music blog kind of petered out. He eventually landed on positive uh, self-confidence or some uh, feel, feeling good topic, which is sort of a new age thing. And he took off for a while. And then eventually it kind of died down. But, but it, you will naturally find your rhythm as long as you just start and, and go with it. So now there's something called the long tail. Have you heard of this concept before? This is a concept by Chris Anderson, I believe. That. You see the Wired Magazine guy? Anyway, the idea is this. You may have a really niche product or topic. Let's say you're writing about schools in Kuala Lumpur or something. You know, you're writing about uh, shoes in Italy, something very, very granular you're going to find enough readers throughout the world eventually who are interested in that topic to equal the same amount of readers who are interested in the mainstream topics, you know, celebrities or movies or something. Um, it, he refers more to sales of products. So these companies, for example, Amazon, they have a tremendous array of niche products. You can find really specific stuff. And the sales of all those really specific Things that don't have high sales, right? The, the record from 1972 by what, Mamas and Papas or something like that that you think nobody's going to buy. Um, they, they, will eventually, they will eventually sell more of, of all those small niche products than, than your mainstream uh, latest, most popular stuff. So that's called the long tail. So your focus on your blog can be really granular. You can, you can focus on whatever you want and you'll find an audience for it. Laurel is, she is somebody who writes just about WordPress and she has a tremendous following, but she keeps a focus on this. If you search for Laurel, this is who you find. Uh, some people are so popular that if you just search for their first name, you get their blog. For example, Darren, if you search for Darren, you get, does anybody know? No, although probably on the first page, Darren Barefoot, you know, you get Darren Rouse, who's pro blogger. He, he's a guy who's really popular. If you search for, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, no. Some people with really common names, I'm trying to think of some others, maybe I'll come to me later, but basically, what? 
No, but you can find me under Tom Johnson, surprisingly. <laughs> so anyway, find a focus and stick to it more or less. And, and this is a great example. And then when you have that focus, brand it on your site somehow so people know what you're writing about. This is a Joshua Porter. He writes about a user interface design. And he lets people know, or social design. And, and so you know, it's not enough to just have it in your own mind. You have to somehow make it explicit on your blog what the focus is. Because people like that. People land on your blog. They're trying to figure out what you're about in 20 seconds. All right, the second main element that I believe adds a lot of appeal and invites people to become loyal followers is story. And this is a, this is a typical story path. You have some kind of conflict, there's a turning point, there's a resolution. And when I say story, usually we think of really classic things where you have a defined protagonist and you have an environment that's described and you know, things like that. But really story, if you think about it in more in looser terms, more abstract terms, all story is is some kind of entity coming across a conflict and trying to wrestle with that conflict. So if you can recast whatever you're writing in terms of this um, attempt to overcome a conflict and how, how, how you find the path around that conflict, that is story. And that's what gives a lot of the appeal of writing. Um, we were talking, oh, this is a little graph. You know, the more story you have, the more appeal you're going to have. And basically, um, well, let me get into this a little bit. I've got a clip by Ira Glass. Okay, have you heard of This American Life? So this is one of my favorite podcasts. This is a podcast, or it's a radio show that's distributed as a podcast. Can you actually explain? Because I'm not sure yeah. the room is Okay. So This American Life is, it's the most popular podcast on iTunes, I believe. And it's produced by somebody named Ira Glass, who's been doing this for a long time. And he takes themes that are, I guess, typical of American culture, but not, they're not that American. He takes themes and he expands on it in a story-like way. And they're, they're fascinating podcasts. The reason that he has so much appeal is because he focuses on story. And the way he crafts it, he's got this background music that really reinforces the plot. So every time there's a twist or a turn in the plot, he, he, he pauses and this background music comes on more strongly and kind of takes it in another direction. So I'm going to play a clip. This is about a four-minute clip where this um, editor for NPR, I believe, is interviewing Ira and saying, asking him about his thoughts on the This I Believe essay series, which is a series of essays where people write kind of what they believe, you know, what they believe in. And people have weird beliefs. Not, it's hardly ever religious beliefs. It's always, you know, I believe in shrimp or something weird. That's <laughs> you know, I, available, so there's a radio station. It used to only get in the United States, but thanks to the internet, you can listen to this on the internet. It's www.npr.com. Yeah, npr.org. And um, for the non-native speakers in the room, um, like Tom's saying, um, the This I Believe series is also wonderful in terms of listening to podcasts. They're about like five minutes long. 
Uh, yeah, well, the podcasts are actually quite long. They can be up to an hour long, but... but um, well, what they put on the website, they're, yeah. they're about five minutes. Yeah, download them from iTunes because then you, they're actually free. Whereas if you try to access the archives, they cost a dollar a piece. Okay, and so it's nice, also yeah. it's a nice... Um, yeah, definitely. It's understanding, it's, it's, it is American culture, but it is much more universal. Yeah, it's mostly universal. Okay, so this clip... Oh, cool. Try to, try to pick out the story that's being told in this clip. Because I'm trying to use this as, as an example of story. A lot of the best of this I believe, a lot of the ones that, that I like the best, are actually this I used to believe. These are people basically talking about how they have changed and what's made them change. Uh, like there's one by a nurse practitioner named Courtney Davis who talked about how early in her career, when patients would go through something really horrible and sad, she was one of those nurses who would try to keep things upbeat, you know, she would keep her voice upbeat and she would actually try to stay cheerful. And even when her own mom, she writes in this essay, was dying in the hospital, she continued that way, saying goodbye to her mom in that cheery nurse voice that she practiced her whole life. I didn't know then that I could have climbed into bed and held her, that I should have wailed when she was gone. I no longer comfort others with false cheer. So, uh, I... I'm wondering, you know, uh, you know, you work in radio and I work in radio. How come we haven't heard from you on what you believe? How come you haven't done an essay for us? Well, actually, I mean, it's 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 funny. I, I think that I don't. I, I I say this, and it's going to sound a little more dramatic than I mean it, but I'm not sure I believe anything in that way that would make for an essay. <laughs> but did you ever did you ever sit down, or do you just sort of ask yourself rhetorically from time to time? I ask myself whenever I hear the series, I hear you on the radio, and I think, like, how come I'm not on Jay's series? Like, how come I'm not doing this, I believe? <laughs> Are you sure you're not just giving up too easily, though? I don't know. I think, I think I'm one of those people where, where, like, I had a lot of really strong beliefs about stuff when I was a kid, and I, like, I had a religious phase, and then I had a very strong, like, atheist phase, and then I had a very political phase, and I was, like, politically correct for years, and the kind of politically correct where, like, when I was in my 20s, I went to Nicaragua, and I called it Nicaragua, and you know what I mean? Like, I was horrible. <laughs> And Did you call it Nicaragua on the radio too? I know I knew better than that. I least knew better than that. But you know what I mean? Like, like, I, like, and and then just like I got older and I saw that things seemed more complicated than the way that I believed them. And um, I, you know, when when I pull myself up, like, what do I believe in? Well, I believe in. I believe that listening to the radio in the car is the best place to listen to the radio. I've got that. <laughs> but that doesn't seem like it's worthy of your series. <laughs> I think it's true. I can defend it, but... How about if something bad happened? Is there something you'd cling to? You mean in terms of a belief? Mm-hmm. I mean, I take comfort in the thought that when things seem really sad, it's a comfort to me that, well, everybody's going to go through this, everybody's gone through this, and and the problem is, like, it's too much of a set of truisms to actually be good enough for your series. <laughs> but your show is always looking for a, a conflict and something to happen and for something to change. I mean, maybe even this show is going to be about how something changes. So 
possibly you're you're not interested in things that are static and enduring. No, I think that's true. It's funny. Like I think that that's why I like the this I used to believe. I'm much more attracted to that than to this I believe because it it just has the feeling of like people are changing and and for me drama is more interesting than and than ideas in a way. It's funny. I, I didn't even know I thought that until now. I'm saying that, but I think it, it's true. Maybe you believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's my essay. You are the master. Okay, so in that clip, he was saying that Ira Glass's radio shows have a common sort of theme. They have a conflict and people uh, change and, and things keep happening. There's nothing static, right? But the real story that's going on there is that Ira Glass is our protagonist. And he's trying to figure out, what, what do I believe, you know? I, I hear all these things, I interview all these people. He can't really figure out if he believes anything. And then there's this turning point, right, where this, the, the guy who's interviewing him gets him to realize that actually he does believe something. And that turning point uh, is the resolution. And so there's, there's, that's an example of story. That's one of my favorite clips, too. But um, here's another example of story. This is by John Hewitt, who writes powar.com. I think that refers to poetry writing resources, something like that. He comes from a sort of novelist, creative writing background. He went through a time where he was writing about stories from his career. And they were really engaging. I loved reading these because they were so story-driven. And this just gives you an an example of how he's setting up his story. It sounds very story-like. I'll read it. He's he's talking about his first day at work somewhere. The branch of the mega corporation that I worked at was housed in a low-slung building that stretched on for at least a quarter mile. My cubicle was in a warehouse-sized room that seemed to never end. At least 400 of us worked in this vast cubicle farm. My stall was located across the aisle from a flock of customer support personnel who serviced the Asian branches of the company. At any time during the day, I could hear a cacophony of languages that I didn't understand a word of. Their, Their customer service work had nothing to do with my job, and not a single person in my row greeted me when I arrived or said anything beyond hello at any point during my stay. The only time I ever heard from any of them was when one of their herd sent an email asking me to stop snapping my gum. I was chewing ginseng gum at the time in an effort to curb hunger pains as part of my most recent ridiculous diet. Apparently none of them were willing to ask me to stop directly. That would have required speaking to me. I was greatly amused to discover that my noise distracted them as much as their noise distracted me. I didn't stop chewing the gum, but I did try to back off the snapping a little. So he, you can see that he's setting this up as a story, and he's got this conflict where he's, he's got this, uh, this wall between himself and the others, and this gum chewing that's annoying each of them. And so he, he's setting this up as a story. So Now here's something you, you're all familiar with, the Susan Boyle video, right? Now why did this video get 100 million views or more? It, got a, it, it was so popular because it tells a great story. The story is what ignites this. So I actually have uh, a little clip. We can watch it if you haven't seen it a million times. It's, okay. Who hasn't seen it? Me. <clears throat> I was hoping I wouldn't see it, but I guess. <laughs> oh, I opened up like five times. Okay. You were hoping you wouldn't see it? Is that what you said? But, uh, oh, no, now I'm stuck. Great. 
Here's the face we love. Okay. What's your name, darling? My name is Susan Boyle. Okay, uh, Susan, and where are you from? I am from Blackburn, near Bathgate, West Lothian. It's a big town. It's a sort of collection of... It's a collection of... Uh, villages. That's a pick there. And how old are you, Susan? I am 47. <laughs> and that's just one side of me. <laughs> Okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but he's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay, big song. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I dreamed a dream in time on Fast forward a little bit. <laughs> All right, I'll. Okay, that's <laughs> well, probably not a good one there. Uh, so dear. the story that we see in there is what? We have this person who looks like a, a no-hoper, as she was described, right? This whole 47-year-old lady that doesn't look like she's going to be a star at all. Nobody believes in her. At the start, everybody's laughing at her ambitions, thinking she's such a fool. You know, she's not going to produce anything. So we have this, this conflict, right, of all this this antagonism towards her and this feeling of lack of confidence. 
And then she finds a way somehow in her her talent to then spin everybody around. And the story is seeing the change of the faces and the expressions of Simon Cowell and all these judges and the audience. That is really what makes this interesting. If you were to take away the audience and just show uh, Susan Boyle singing without any background, there would be no story. It would have not had nearly the appeal. So story is, is hugely important. Um, and and uh, you could talk a lot about story. It is probably the most difficult part of writing a post is to figure out what the story is, to see it when there doesn't appear to be any story, and then to capture it and convey it in a short amount of time. Any questions about anything so far? Okay, the next one, revealing appropriately. Blogs are often criticized for this, right? This navel-gazing narcissism and exposure of everything personal, uh, things like that. But really, that's part of their appeal is this, this glimpse. By the way, this is somebody looking through a little hole in the fence. He's not tearing a hole in the fence, as somebody once told me. Okay, so um, it, it's this idea that, that you get a glimpse into somebody's life and they're revealing in a transparent way some details about their personal lives. Without that personal aspect, blogs really lose a lot of their appeal. I mean, if you think about topics uh, and, and content, people often don't have new ideas. They, they, nobody's coming up with completely new theories and ideas and, and things to say that haven't already been said. But when you add the personal element of applying your own personal experience and how it happened to you, it suddenly makes it unique and, and interesting. Um, there's, now there's a danger in this. There's a guy named Ches Pazienza, who was a CNN This Morning, this morning Show or something like that uh, producer. And he had a blog, or he has a blog, and he really expressed some strong opinions on the blog. Uh, he's a great writer, he's very talented, smart, um, but his opinions were, I guess, too radical for CNN, because on CNN, he, they're, as a news organization, they have to try to be objective and try to not have this bias, right? Well, on his blog, he really revealed all, and it got him into trouble. So, so there's a danger in going too far, but I think, well, at least I know where the line is between going too far and not going far enough. Right? If, you write it, if you're being completely transparent about work details and talking about the project you're on and how this colleague did X and your manager responded Y and this was the repercussions, you might get in, into some little hot water. Right? You may, may not fare well. Um, this Chez actually got fired from his job and then interestingly, his, the guy who fired him also got fired two weeks later. So it's kind of weird. <laughs> but it, my, my wife says uh, sometimes, she remarks that you have to almost write fiction to tell the truth. And what she means by this is that there's so many things she wants to write about, but she knows that in writing about them, she's going to hurt and offend and, and make other people feel very uncomfortable. So she kind of backs off. She knows where that line is. A lot of times she's written things that I read and say, I can't believe you're writing that. Please, please edit that. <laughs> but but uh, I've learned to just, you know, let things go. And, but basically, this is really, this is one of the constant struggles in blogging is how much do you reveal? How much do you keep back? And where's that line? Um, 
if you never reveal any kind of details about your life, never talk about your, what you really think, what, what happened to you or what, what your thoughts and feelings are, your blog won't have any appeal. It's that personal connection that, that resonates with people. Now, beyond, beyond just content, there's this abstract quality of voice. And voice is difficult to try to describe, but I think we, we recognize it, obviously. I've got a clip by IT author. Do you know who IT author is? Have you ever, nobody's ever heard of him? He's the only other podcaster, really, in our field. Alistair Christie. And he's based in Edinburgh, Scotland, somewhere over there. This is actually a picture of him walking. And he had, one of, he had a podcast a while ago called A Dogcast, where he's out walking his dog, and he's, he's just talking. He's giving you his thoughts. And this is one of my favorite podcasts because as he's walking, it sounds like a friend is right next to you. Or it, sounds like, it sounds like you're walking along with Alistair as he's walking his dog in this beautiful area. And so I've got a little clip. It's just, it's not, I mean, it's, he's not got the most compelling voice here, but it's an example where the voice is really unique and it comes across. So remember, he's walking and podcasting at the same time. They get stuck or something goes wrong, they quickly go to the online help, do a quick search, find something, read a couple of paragraphs, close down the help, go back to what they're doing. Um, so they're only ever um, reading online help, you know, when they're pissed off probably, because they can't understand the software, they've got stuck, or it's just not behaving in the way they expected it to. Um, and you have to, in terms of writing online help, I think you really have to bear that in mind, that somebody's just uh, jumped to that particular page you're writing from uh, being pissed off and not being able to do something. So they just want to know quickly, they just want to find out the solution to the problem they're having and they're not in a great mood and they don't want to read lots and lots of stuff and they don't want flowery prose. But maybe that's uh, stage two then where the online help is your prime output. And you probably still have manuals. We still have manuals because people still want manuals. <laughs> and we spend a lot of money making those manuals. Um, producing manuals is time consuming and expensive and producing the hard copies is also very expensive. But, um, as I said, there's an expectation in-house for that. And there occasionally is a, uh, is a sales reason to do that because... Um, okay, so he just kind of keeps going on and on. It's a little, it's interesting, right? Because he's, he's obviously doing, he's walking and he's breathing hard. So his voice is, is rhythmic and periodic. But uh, if you listen to that for a long time, and let's say you're walking as well, 
he kind of gets in the rhythm of your head and, and it feels like you're really having a conversation with somebody. And I think the best voice that you can embrace either in podcasts and screencasts in, in blogging uh, is this conversational ability. A while back, I, I uh, attended this voice workshop. There's a guy in my area who is just really um, known for, for doing voiceovers on commercials and other things, and he had these workshops, and I said I'd set up a blog if he gave me free attendance for his workshop. And so I, I started going to this, and vo a voiceover is basically the voice talent that reads a commercial or that you hear on the radio or something. And I wanted to learn how to sound like that, you know, for whatever I'm doing, screencasts, podcasts. And he said that the number one thing you have to do is imagine a situation. So let's say you're giving a screencast. Um, imagine, rather than the idea that you're sitting in a chair giving a screencast, that you're in a cafe shop, coffee shop, talking to a friend and explaining to that friend how to work the computer. When you imagine that situation, a lot of times, your voice changes. Now in commercials, he imagines a lot of other situations, right? Maybe you're a banker talking to people on the street or something, or you're, it's the, it's the same concept as theater, right? You're no longer yourself. And that's what he liked about doing voiceovers, this escape into this other person, this other situation. And when you, when you imagine that situation, the voice follows. Uh, so, so that's, it's, it, it's hard to do, uh, but, but um, it, it is one of the big te techniques. The other tip he gave, let's see. The other tip he gave about voice, beyond just imagining a situation, is to inflect. He constantly said, Tom, you're so monotone. You know, your voice has no inflection whatsoever. And I, you know, I know my voice is kind of boring, but I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> and so, I started, to, I started to notice this throughout the day. As I was watching movies or, or, or listening to the radio, you notice that the waves, if you were to um, look at kind of the wave patterns of people who are actors, they have much more inflection. They go all up and down the scale. They're much more dramatic. And in contrast, like this bottom one, this was sort of me, just mon more monotone. So as you start to put more emphasis and more, um, you just start to go up and down the scale, you, you get a lot more um, attention from readers. People are more interested. But I think, I think it works really well for you. When I, when I first hit upon your podcasts, first of all, I thought you were at least 10 years younger than you are now. Huh? Your voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is morning still. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I knew almost everybody personally who you interviewed. So I thought, oh, okay, what does Bo have to say? Or what does Jack have to say? And as I started to look at your content, I went, no. Even if, even if he's 30, he's not, he's not novice at all. And so, I, but I started from the context of the sound of, the physical sound of your voice, and then went from there to the relevance of the people you were interviewing, which gave you more credibility to me. Mm -hmm. And what you were getting out of them were things that, some similar conversations I knew. 
and some that I didn't. And and then that's how my respect for you grew. And hmm. then I thought, but it really your voice works for you really well in that. But but now that's it, it's a podcast is a conversation though, right? So it's more natural. Mm-hmm. But what if you're not not doing a podcast, you're doing a screencast because you're giving a video tutorial for, for a computer. You, you're taken out of that conversation. But if you could put yourself back in the conversation mode, then it works much better because it's more natural. Right? A lot of that stuff comes natural, but if you have to imagine the situation, um, it, or, or if you're not in that situation, you have to imagine it, basically. Yours is very natural. Well, thank you. <laughs> so there's a couple... voice is nice. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> No, I, I, now, Deuce, have you heard of Deuce, Deuce.com? This is another blogger who got her start by being fired, anyway. But she, she now makes way, way more. This is the, she says the best thing that could have happened to her was being fired. She now makes a lot of money. But uh, she, she has a very popular blog. And one of the reasons her blog is so popular is because she has an unmistakably uh, funny and, and engaging voice. So this is a just a short paragraph from one of her recent posts. Talking, she's a mommy blogger, right? But uh, this is about, and she's pregnant, so she's responding to stuff about being, what you should and shouldn't do uh, when you're pregnant. She says, when the, and she's being invited to do something for a show. When the producers of the show first told me about this topic, I was all, wait a minute, this has to be a total setup. Do they want me to be honest? Because I still routinely break into the hospital at night just so that I can rub my belly up against the x-ray machine and I just know that some crazy person is going to try to tell me that's bad for the baby. Obviously she's being sarcastic. Um, And her voice is always like this. It's really engaging. If you read it, it draws you in. There's another person, Penelope Trunk, who is also really popular. And if you read her blog, her voice comes across really strong. she writes about careers. If you search for Penelope Trunk, the brazen careers, this is what you find. And one of her recent posts was about trying to make a living as an artist and how that's such a false idea. She says, during my art days, I did not go out with friends ever because I didn't have enough money to go to a coffee shop. And I was always cold because I lived in Boston and didn't have a winter coat. At many points, I did not have a home. So I just sort of carried my laptop around and wrote and hoped that something would come up by the end of the day. And I almost never had clean clothes because I didn't have money to buy detergent. So uh, it's hard to get a sense of voice from one little snippet, but you can see that these people are writing in somewhat of a conversational way. You can get a sense of their personality. And if you can communicate that, it helps increase the appeal. So here's a video. this is by Common Craft. Raise your hand if you've seen the Common Craft videos before. Only one, two. Okay, so you've got to see this. Um, this is an example of a screencast that's got an engaging voice. And it's not that engaging of a voice, but it is, and it's a super engaging uh, visual, which ties into another point. First, a quick message from Common Craft. This video comes in versions designed for use in training and education. Find them at commoncraft.com. It is explaining how the internet works. Have you ever wondered, when you visit a website, where those words and images come from? This is the World Wide Web in plain English. These days, as long as we have an internet connection, using the web is pretty easy. We can visit billions of pages on things from pet alligators to the weather in Holland. 
To help figure out how it works, let's pretend we can get really small, follow the wires, and explore what makes the web work. In order to get to the web, we need a connection. Hold on, something's weird. Let's try making it smaller. We need a connection from our home or business to the rest of the online world. This usually happens through the phone or cable lines, or even satellite. This connection means that information from around the world can reach our computers. If we could see the connection, the information coming through it would look like little packets of code. It doesn't make sense to most people. We need a translator, something that turns the packets of code into words and images we see on a website. For this, we use a web browser. It translates the information and makes it useful to us. But that code has to come from somewhere, right? If we could follow it to its home, we'd see that it's coming from another computer. Not a regular computer, but one that's built to make web pages available. It's called a server. The words and images that appear on our screen live here in the server. If there was only one server, this would be simple. But there are millions of servers and web pages. We need a way to find a specific page on a specific server. We do this with web addresses. Each server and website has a unique one. As long as we have the right web address, we can visit a page on any server on the web. The reason we call it a web is that all the servers are connected. We can easily jump from one to the other using addresses via our web browser. And we don't have to remember all the addresses. Web pages use shortcuts or links, words and images we can click that direct us to page after page. These links create a web of connections that are easy to navigate. Together, this system makes up the World Wide Web. So, let's sum it up. Okay, so you get the idea. Now his voice in there isn't, isn't uh, something that really makes you pay attention to the voice, really. It's, it's something that's clear, but it's also, uh, you know, it's somewhat engaging. He, he's, he's not talking down to you. It almost feels like he's kind of sitting next to you, explaining how this works with moving little pieces of paper. And of course, the whole paper idea is ingenious, and that's how all of his videos are. And uh, it's the, the sort of visual eye candy that makes him really engaging. But, but the voice is, is also really solid there. Uh, one thing that you can do to help you convey and communicate your voice beyond the techniques I was talking about, the inflection, uh, imagining a situation, being clear, is to have an about page on your site. When people can see a picture of you and know a little bit about you, they can better imagine you as a person. They can better kind of visualize your voice or, or imagine, uh, it's like the personas in technical writing. When you have a picture of a person, it's a lot easier to write something for that person. and It's a lot easier to listen for that person. This concludes part one of the presentation that I gave to the Vienna uh, Transalpine Conference on blogging, podcasting, and screencasting. To continue listening to the presentation, download part two, which is linked to from this post, or just uh, another episode on iTunes. Thanks.